Bibles, please open them to Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to start with verse 18 and go into the first verse of chapter 4. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, all right, so in Colossians, Paul and Timothy have been very, um, I think, well, arguing that we have a foundation, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. And they've argued how he is supreme. He is above all others. Um, and then they switch tone. They went to, okay, if this is the truth, how does that affect our lives? And that's what we talked about a few weeks now ago, about three weeks ago. Um, what does it mean for us personally? What does it mean for us as a community of believers? Well, now they go even further to discuss family. And Martin Luther, um, he called this Hostelfen, which is the household table. And commentators have been saying that ever since. It's a household table of how we are to relate to one another, especially within the house. Um, Now, admittedly, a lot of this is hard, especially on our culture. (laughs) Um, Very different from what we see around us. But I do think that there is a great amount of wisdom to be gleaned from this. And so how we're going to do that? Let's find out. All right. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So Paul and Timothy begin the household table, so to speak, with wives. As we notice, wives are to submit to your husbands. This terminology may not be appreciated, as I talked about in our modern culture, where liberation is so prevalent. It automatically assumes that the husband is the head of the house or of the family, and as such, this runs counterculture with our modern times. Before we get into an uproar, however, it is probably best to try and understand the text. As it is, the term which is translated as submit is often used within the New Testament. Um, It can mean submitting to church authorities, uh, for example, or submitting even to one another in Christ. As such, to submit is to recognize an order. Sometimes that order is mutual submission. And other times, as in the case with the family, the submission is focused on wives to husbands. Likewise, to submit is not the same as obey. Um, As we will see shortly, obedience is different than submission. Instead, submission is simply a recognition that God has placed an order in regards to family, or more specifically, he has given the family certain roles. Does this mean that the wife should submit and acknowledge her husband in all things above all things? Well, no, not necessarily. Simply put, God is the head of the husband. And as such, if the husband commands his wife to do something sinful or against the will of God, then the wife has every right and reason to disobey her husband. In doing this, she may not decide that her husband is um, not the head of the house, but simply recognizes her highest submission belongs to God. As such... As she submits to her husband, she does what is fitting in the Lord. 
In this sense, the Lord represents Christ, and it represents Christ throughout this text. Thus, submission is not a matter of what is best for society at large, according to Christianity, but because God has called her, the wife, to a particular role in the household. And in following this role in faithfulness, it is fitting to Christ, to the Lord. Now, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, before husbands get all puffed up... (laughs) That's right, women. (laughs) Um, Paul and Timothy focus on the head of the house, which is the husband. While much of the culture at the time focused on the role of husband and head of the house, of having the patriarchal tendencies of control, here in Paul and Timothy, they tell husbands to love your wives. The term love here is not a brotherly love, phileo, or nor sensual love, um, but instead comes from the same word used in 1 Corinthians 13, which is agape. Thus, the love which they are called to provide for their wives is not first and foremost an emotional love or sensual love, but a love which is bound in patience, kindness. It does not envy. It does not boast. Husbands who love their wives in such a way will not treat them in a way which is harsh or painful. Instead, they will love them as Ephesians says, Christ loves the church. Thus, while wives are called to submit, husbands should make it easy for them to submit by loving them grandly. Uh, Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, the next group in the household are children. Uh, The term children is the same as we use today, and because of this, it is possible it could mean a whole range of ages. Others, however, tend to believe that it's just focused on the young, especially um, the, the very young, let's say between 1 and 15 or so. Um, though I guess 15 isn't that young anymore. Still, personally, it seems more likely that the focus is on all children regardless of age. In this case, all children are called to obey their parents and everything. Um, it is interesting to consider the word usage here. For in this, we do, do see a sense of obedience which was not found when it came to wives. In this sense, when wives submit to their husbands, there is a voluntary act on their part, whereas the obedience, it falls onto this category of doing when what is told. Um, as such, children to do what their parents tell them to do or to obey in that capacity, as this is the order of the household. Before we continue further, we should notice that it is parents rather than just the father. Um, Because of this, we want to remind ourselves that this is not just obedience to the head of the household, but obedience to both parents who are raising them. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Despite the previous point that the focus of children is to obey both father and mother, the exhortation falls on the fathers. (laughs) Um, Though it could be noted that the term for fathers could also be used for both parents, the truth is is that I I think it is fathers that's supposed to be said here. In either case, it seems more likely Paul and Timothy are focusing on fathers since they were the head of the household. And if the father were to pass, the responsibility of caring for the mother would fall on the children. Um, Still, in our modern society, it is noticed that there are many mothers who do not have a husband, and as such, this exhortation would fall on them as well as the head of the house in such circumstances. So we want to be careful of that in our own culture. Um, So to not provoke your children, though, this is a way of saying do not embitter your children. This has two effects. The first is to not raise one's child to the point where they will want to turn away in rebellion that we see in Deuteronomy 21. 
The second may very well look at it from the angle of not causing that which is good, living before God and making it something bitter for our children. Why should they not do this? Because the possibility of discouragement. Uh, This discouragement may agree with the previous two points of either discouragement into rebellion or discouragement away from what is good and right. However, it may simply be a reflection to keep from discouragement of pleasing one's parents, too. Uh, One can understand how children can be easily discouraged in this way. And so Paul and Timothy may be warning against this. And we've all experienced that, I think. Um, Dan, you can't shake your head with your dad sitting next to you and your mom (laughs) next to you. But there are times when, you know, you feel like, okay, I have failed my mother or I have failed my grandparents or I have failed somebody and it just discourages you and it makes you feel uh, awful. Um, You know, we don't want to do that to our children, essentially. We want to make it easier for them, too. Um, All right, so now comes the trickier part. (laughs) And I say trickier, but you'll see. And we're going to read all of 22 through 25 together because it's a block. Bond servants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. All right. This is an interesting twist to our modern ears. Paul and Timothy now deal with bond servants or slaves in the household schema. Something we may forget is that the majority of slaves during this time were quite literally bond servants. Um, and these people were people who sold themselves into slavery in order to pay off a debt. Yet, while if, even if this is the case, the scriptures never condone the selling of slaves or of people... We have even seen how nations were judged for slave trade in Amos, especially as such the scriptures may not negate it. They do discuss it as part of the culture of the time. And we'll see more about this in a little bit. Likewise, while many would then think that as, uh, that is a cop-out, it should also be considered that Paul addresses slaves at all. And further, we should consider what Paul says about them is also significant. So the first thing he says is to obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. This is similar to the children stated earlier, with the exception of earthly masters. Uh, This earthly master's terminology has two points. The first is that they are masters and therefore should be obeyed. The second, though, and more significantly, is that if these are earthly masters, then that means that there is a heavenly master. But how should they serve such masters? Well, Paul and Timothy say, not with eye service, people pleasers, but sincerity of the heart. This is a way of saying, don't serve in a way which is pleasing when they're just around and then slank off um, behind their back or slack off behind their back. Nor in a way which will seek to simply win their favor, which could lead to a hypocritical service. But instead, they should serve with sincerity, a continuous consistency in their work ethic and conduct. As was said previously, for there to be earthly masters implies that there is also another master. While they are to serve their earthly master, the truth is that they are to fear their Lord. This might come as a shock, but the truth is fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom as the Proverbs teach. Likewise, they should have no fear of their earthly masters because of that, because instead they should place all of their fear in the right place, which is in God. God should be their motivation, not necessarily their earthly masters. 
This is further shown in verse 23, where the focus shifts to everything which um, is to be done. Don't do it for the sake of your earthly masters per se, but instead do it for the sake of Christ. Serve others in a way that Christ is glorified through your service. The eschatological end times focus comes in verse 24. Um, Why should they work as unto the Lord? Because it is from him that they will receive the inheritance as their reward. For a slave, they would not inherit anything. Um, There would be little reward for the slave in this time period. They were at best household servants and worse, um, those who were worked very hard. Yet in Christ, they do receive an inheritance which is greater than any other inheritance. They receive a reward greater than any other reward. As such, this is the motivation for them and the command to continue to serve faithfully to Christ. Yet, even if there is a recognition that the inheritance would be sufficient reason for continuing to persevere, there is clearly a possibility of those who would seek to run from what they are called to do or to serve in a way which is unbefitting of one who belongs to Christ. Thus, the warning is added that wrongdoers will be paid back for their wrongdoing. It is possible that this is a reflection on masters, but seems unlikely since they have not even been brought up in the focus yet. As such, there may be a temptation to do wrong without worrying about the repercussions because they are in Christ. But the truth is, If we are in Christ, then we will not seek to do wrong, no matter what the status is. As such, Paul and Timothy remind them that for those who do live in such a manner and do not care, there is judgment as evidence that they are outside of Christ. The final clause is an interesting one. As Paul and Timothy declare, there is no partiality with Christ. Now, this may refer only to slaves and their situation, They may think that because of their status, they can get away with not fulfilling their duties because who cares? If this is the case, they remind them that Christ is not partial to wrongdoers based upon their status in society. But if that is the case, then it is also true of masters. So there is, at least with the final clause, a warning for both slaves and masters. Wrongdoers, regardless of their social status, will know the repercussions of their wrongdoing if they do not repent of them. Now the last verse, verse 4 one. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The final member of the family in this context is again a reflection on the head of the household. If one has servants or slaves or bondservants, then they are to be treated well. In fact, justly and fairly. Justly refers to what is right, while failure refers to equality. It is possible for masters, because they are in their particular situation, to abuse their power. Uh, Paul and Timothy call on them to not do this. Instead, they are to maintain justice with those under them and not show partiality but fairness. They are not to take advantage of those who are below them on the social ladder, but to treat them well. What is the foundation for them to treat those below them in this way? The fact that the masters also have a master who is in heaven. Because in the end, they themselves serve someone who is even greater than they are, and that is God himself, and especially Christ. In this way, they must recognize that while they have uh, high social status among the world, the truth is that they themselves are slaves, themselves of Christ. They are no higher on the social ladder in heaven than their own slaves 
who are also in Christ. All right. The main point of these verses are to provide a household table for the believers in Colossae. While this model is similar to other such models during the time period, the truth is there are many differences which give the Colossians a firmer foundation to stand on than their uh, pagan counterparts. While the world around them gave the ultimate power to the head of the household, this system recognized that the head of the household is ultimately accountable to God. Thus, a complete and total understanding of the Christian household leads to a stronger foundation for marriage and for the family overall. All right. So this is this first point is actually the last point that I wrote, and I felt the need to just write something on it because if it's going to be talked about in the scriptures, we should probably expound on it a little. Um, and that's on slavery. Now, before we get into the family proper that we consider in our own time period, we do consider Paul and Timothy adds slaves to this discussion on family and the family household. In the time period, slaves were common. Now, we want to be careful in understanding slavery back then versus what we saw in the U.S. As during the time period, very often slaves, as I talked about, sold themselves into slavery to pay a debt, which is why many translations prefer to use the term bondservant rather than slave. However, during the time period, the term slave referred to a number of different circumstances that people could find themselves in. It could refer to bondservant. It could be to slavery via war or people taken in a slave trading, for example. Admittedly, though, it is hard to also not relativize the passage. What I mean is it can be easy for us to say, well, let's just call masters employers and call slaves employees. (laughs) Um, While it is true that in a technical sense the parallels are there, and both can learn from this, we want to be careful in doing so because even in this capacity, the truth is the slaves back then still had little hope of ever escaping the slavery that they were in. Um, Whereas today, if we have a bad employer, I quit, I'm going to go get a new job. So there's a difference. Um, Still, the point is that Paul and Timothy recognize many of their readers, they're slaves. Likewise, one of the deliverers is none other than Onesimus, the, one, the same slave Paul wrote to Philemon about. As such, the slaves themselves need to be reminded of their new status in Christ, and in turn, this will cause slave owners, the masters, to remember this fact as well. Paul eventually encourages Philemon to not accept Onesimus as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. Thus, the paradigm is actually set for slavery to not be what it was in the culture, but to perhaps be something of mutual service. Indeed, we see that especially when the masters are called to act justly and fairly. While masters had the authority and the power, they could easily abuse that power just as husbands could and parents could. If they are in Christ, however, they will not. They will, not, they will do what is right, even by those in society um, itself deems as lowest of the low. In this case, what Paul and Timothy say about slavery and masters, while not completely demolishing uh, the cultural norm, it does flow against it by reminding the masters that they are slaves themselves to Christ and should treat their own slaves kindly rather than harshly. To that end, one could say that we should follow the logical conclusion of what the disciples taught. While they do not condemn slavery, they never say it is a good thing. 
and instead even write to and on behalf of slaves. And some people may hate them for this, but the truth is, when we consider it, they said a great deal which was important to give hope to those who had no hope at all in their situation, and for that they should be commended. We can also be sure of something further. We can be sure that the apostles themselves would have rejected the practice of slavery found in the U.S., Europe, and Africa, which occurred during the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, as well as the slave trades we see today. Simply put, such slave trading was prohibited and something worthy of punishment by God according to the prophets, and we saw that especially in Amos, the first three chapters. While it is true from military conquests there became slaves, simply taking people from their home in border raids for the main goal of profits was always considered an abominable act in the prophets and in the law. So it is, we do have justification in the scriptures in our own societies to stand up against such acts and to seek to abolish them in our own societies. We can never justify slavery of equally, uh, especially treating humans as commodity rather than um, as who they are in their humanity. And we, should, could, and we should always seek justice in our own societies by publicly denouncing any form of slavery, whether they be child slavery, the sex slave trade, which permeates our society today. We are called to seek justice, so let us make sure we do so, essentially. All right. Now it leads to family matters and not the show. Um, It is clear from today's text that the family matters for Christians. Though we can see how much of the themes and the forums are similar to the culture of the time, because they were, the simple truth is what Paul and Timothy describe is also very different. And because of this, they show that the family is something which continued to be important in Christ. Not only the family, but the roles and the order of the household, which we encounter even to this day. Now, the issue that many individuals have with the household table, the order we find in the text, is how earlier in Colossians, Paul and Timothy said, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. We find a similar statement in Galatians when we read, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. When we read these verses, it can be hard to understand why there are then given commands for wives to submit or children and slaves to obey when there appears to be a liberation of such cultural concepts. Well, To begin, we want to remember that the passages above are discussing very different issues than, let's say, household rules. In the above passages, we are dealing with soteriology, salvation, um, and what it means in our new identities which are found in Christ. While our new identities certainly do have an effect on our lives and our lifestyles, it does not mean that we should read into other portions of teachings what is declared here, otherwise we miss the point of both. Ultimately, Paul and Timothy recognize that we do in fact have a new identity if we are in Christ, for in Christ we find the new man rather than the old man. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We find redemption, we find forgiveness, we find life, and we find grace and peace from God. 
Once Paul and Timothy have stated these realities in Colossians, they continue to show what such a lifestyle of the new man will look like, which is a reflection of the image of God himself, which is Christ. Now, however, they recognize what a family would look like, which is important since its inception from the creation of Eve onward. Will the family look like other families? Will they look the same? No. While there are certain similarities, the truth is there is a change which occurs for even family life for those who are in Christ. The husbands, the wives, the children, and even the slaves all have specific roles and purposes which they are called to be faithful in. The differences are important between what the world and what Christians believe about family, and they are important. For example, uh, during that time period especially, it was expected of wives during the time to obey their husbands. But to submit to them was something else entirely, as we discussed. For submission does not necessarily mean obey, as we have pointed out previously. Instead, it is a recognition that with their own redeemed wills, they will submit to their husbands as the head of the household and the final decision maker. Now, before we get too ruffled by this idea, it is important to consider what Paul says concerning husbands. They are to love their wives, not being harsh with them. I personally always find it fascinating to consider those two thoughts. The first with wives and submission, and the second with husbands and loving their wives. I sometimes wonder, like a number of commentators, if this is added here because of the liberty found in Christ. In other words, is it possible that women would have a hard time seeing the necessity in being submissive to their husbands, and likewise, would husbands have a hard time loving their wives? Or is that something which has nothing to do with being in Christ and everything to do with personality? I think we can all agree that wives, more often than husbands, need to be loved. It is something which women naturally desire far greater than men. Now, what, does, what do men, what do they want? What do they desire? Having respect. In some capacity. So maybe there is something psychological about this that Paul and Timothy recognize as a good practice for husbands and wives to treat each other as they need to be treated. Now, regardless of that rabbit trail, the interesting thing is how husbands are called to love their wives. In this sense, we notice previously, love here is not necessarily an emotional appeal. But the term used is rooted in the same love found in 1 Corinthians 13. Thus the love which the husband is to have for their wives is one which is entrenched in the love of God. It is to find itself in the love of God. They are called to faithfully reflect the love of God onto their wives. In other words, they are to make it easy for their wives to submit. They are to make it a safe place to submit. No one especially here, would have a problem submitting to God. For we know God, and we know our God is a loving God, a God full of mercy, grace, peace. There is no fear in submitting to God because we know what he has accomplished through Jesus. As such, husbands are called in the same way, to make it safe by loving their wives. Husbands, this is a high calling. In one of my commentators, they quoted C.S. Lewis, And he said, It is painful being a man to have to assert the privilege or the burden to which Christianity lays upon my own sex. I am crushingly aware how inadequate most of us are 
and our actual and historical individualities to fill the place prepared for us. There is truth to this. Men are called to a particular practice, and it is not easy. In fact, elsewhere, and again we mentioned this, but I'll bring it back, Ephesians, we can understand why the similarities between Christ and husbands are made. That husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. There's nothing easy to this. In this way, too, we see how the scriptures ultimately teach that while husbands are the head of the household, it does not mean that they're called to be tyrants. They're not called to lord their position over their wives, but just as Christ laid down his life for us rather than lord his position over us, so we too are to be for our wives. When we consider it then, submission is not a scary thing if husbands are being faithful to their own calling. In fact, there will be far more times of mutual submission in this instance as a husband husband loves his wife in such depth. Similar to Christ, as he washed the disciples' feet, the Lord washing the feet of his friends, so it is with husbands, to wash and care for their wives in all things. Yet this isn't the only relationship that is established. We also see parents and children. Now children, they are to be obedient. And I tend to think of this as reflecting especially any child living with their parents still especially, though there might be some leeway for children once they are adults and they're out of the house. Regardless, even then they are called to honor and respect their parents, regardless of how old you become. So, this is a calling as far back as the Ten Commandments. And thus, we can see how significant it is. But for the Christian household, it is not enough for children to be taught to obey. Parents, too have their own responsibility not to lord over their children, per se, but to keep from causing them to be discouraged. Parents, especially fathers, can easily discourage their children um, from being obedient by being too harsh, but also by being too soft. They can discourage their children from being obedient by forcing rather than teaching, uh, by showing anger and wrath rather than grace and love. This doesn't mean that children should have free reign. Instead, it reminds us that parents are to be wise with their children, encouraging them in all manners of truth. Discipline is good, but not when it is done in absolute anger. A wise parent will learn early that discipline should always seek to reconcile, to teach, rather than to harm. So when it comes to family and roles... We see that such things are not abolished by Christ, but instead it is properly placed. Just as humanity is to bear the image of God, and just as humanity has tainted the understanding of it, through Christ the image is restored. So in this, the family, the image is restored as it should be. And it's restored on a great foundation. Now before we get to the foundation itself... We want to consider something more. If we consider it, nothing within the above text is conditional. What I mean is, Dan, what happens when your wife does not respect you? (laughs) Um, Ellen, I'm making fun of them. Sorry, I should do this another way, but oh well. (laughs) What happens if your husband does not love you? Uh, Dan, you're still here. No, we'll do David. Because Joanne's here. <laughs> Children, uh, you know, David, what happens if your parent causes you consternation? <laughs> what happens then? 
If this is the case, if one side fails, does that mean that the other side can say, I'm through, I'm finished? Can the wife say, my husband doesn't love me, so I'm not going to submit? Or the husband say, my wife doesn't submit, so I'm not going to love? The answer is no. Simply put, all because one side does not fulfill their responsibility, because a husband fails or a wife fails, that does not excuse any of us from, fu- from fulfilling what we are called to be faithful in. Now, I know this for two reasons. The first reason is that we assume that f- all families are listening to this letter as it's being read 2,000 years ago. Simply put, we know that is not the case. There are likely wives with unbelieving husbands who are listening to this back then, and slaves with unbelieving masters. There is nothing in the text to assume that all those who are listening are perfect family situations where everyone is in Christ. Thus, right from the get-go, there is a sense of foundationalism which goes beyond how someone might treat me and how I should treat them in response. Thus, I am to treat unconditionally. Now, this comes to the second point. Why is that? What on earth could cause us to live so unconditionally with each other? What possible explanation can there be that would cause anyone to say, even though they aren't in the right, I'm going to persevere? Well, the answer is in the foundation, and that is Christ. Consider it. It says, wives submit as is fitting to the Lord. Children obey, for this pleases the Lord. Bondservants obey, fearing the Lord. Work heartily as for the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance. You are serving Lord Christ, the Lord Christ. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. How many of you noticed just how often Jesus is mentioned? Far too often we forget that while discussing these human issues and these human institutions, Christ has redeemed. Far too often we can forget that Christ has redeemed not only our souls, not only our bodies, but even our institutions such as family. By Christ we have been redeemed. By Christ we are given a foundation for our marriages, for our families, and one that is lasting. Far too often... I have encountered individuals who get married for this reason or for that reason. Some get married because they feel the love emotional. Yet what happens when love fades? The answer is they no longer want to be married to the person because they no longer feel the connection. For the Christian, what happens if love fades? Or if there's a season when you and your spouse are having trouble relating? The answer is you stay You persevere. Why? Because Christ has redeemed marriage itself. Christians have the greatest of foundations, and that is Jesus. It is because of him that when our spouses fail, we can continue forward because we know that in our faithfulness to what he has called us to, we glorify him. When Carissa, she's not here, so I can pick on her. When Carissa fails at being submissive, I will continue to love her because of Christ. I will continue to love her because it honors Christ when I do, even if she doesn't do what she's supposed to do. It's unconditional because our devotion to Christ is unconditional. 
like I said previously, who wouldn't want to serve a master such as Jesus? If I do, then I will be faithful in what he has called me to be as a husband. Likewise, wives and children will do the same in what they're called to be. I think that this kind of teaching is important for us. For there are many who would fear such a marriage situation. Well, good. Do fear getting married. Know the hardships. Know the costs. Our sons need to be taught what it means to love their wives under Christ. Our daughters need to be taught what it means to submit to your husbands under Christ. Do you know how cautious they will be in finding their spouse if this is the case? Do you know what prayer they will give for their future spouse if they realize this significance? That maybe, just maybe, they will begin to ask the right questions about the persons they might even date? I hope that with my daughter, that she will not look at a man and think, man, he looks good in those jeans, I'm going to pursue him. Instead, I want her to say, this man could lead me further into the image of Christ. In such an instance, I say, hold on, my dear. Hold on tight. The same from my son as well. Hold on tight. Personally, I find it important to continue these things for this reason. I find it important because marriage and family, it's become something so denigrated that it is hard to see it anymore. Now is the time for Christians to stand firm on the truth of what they know through Christ. That even these institutions, marriage and family, they've been redeemed by Christ. And we can see it by faithfully living in what we know he has called us to be in them. The world, it's in need of us to be faithful in these areas. So be faithful. The world is in need of us to show what marriage and family is all about. Be faithful. Know the fruits that the faithful household will bring. For such fruit is everlasting forever pleasing to our King, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is to this end we remain faithful, not for any other purpose in our lives, but for Him and His glory. And that, of course, leads to the Gospel. Um, And the Gospel here, I mean, it it might be hard for us to see, but we'll see it in here, in these passages, because it's, it's there, it's always there. Um, but to begin, it does begin with our origins. It begins with, you know what, God is the creator God. We talked about it in Sunday school that, you know what, all belief systems have a first cause, whether it's natural or supernatural. Well, as Christians, we believe it's supernatural. We believe that the first cause is God himself, and he started it all. Um, and he brought forth this whole universe by his will. Um, and last of all, though, it says in the scriptures that he created us to be his image bearers. And this is spectacular for us because it means that we're implanted with something which is uniquely divine. And along with that, we also have other attributes that we see from someone who would have created us. We see that we have love, reason, that we're able to have hope and we're able to have faithfulness and things like these. And we're able to have them because God has them. And likewise, it shows that, you know what? All humanity, we're all worthy of dignity we're all worthy of um, dignity and worth and sanctity to life. And I think this is where ultimately the gospel does start to take effect. Is the fact of not our origins per se, but the fall. The fact that 
families, we need to be taught right. <laughs> it implies we think wrongly about them to begin with. Um, the fact that Paul and Timothy have to bring forward this whole discussion of husbands and wives and children, it says that maybe our societies aren't getting it right. Maybe they have to get it right. Um, and it doesn't get it right because the fall, because in our human nature, we have free will, which is a gift from God. And with our freedom, we've chosen the sin against God, and that sin has grappled with us, and we have broken relationships, broken relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world, each other. That implies our family members. It implies our children. It implies our parents. Um, and along with this, every broken relationship comes with sin. And because of that, God must judge sin because he is a good God. But we have hope and redemption, and that's the other part that we see today. We see the redemption through Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came, he lived, he died, he rose again in time, space, history, and flesh, and that the redemption that he brings is not only about our salvation from sin, but it's also redemption in regards to even our marriages, even our families, so that they can glorify God the way that they're supposed to be. Um, and you know what? That's wonderful. Because nothing falls outside of the sphere of Jesus Christ. Nothing at all comes outside of who he has called us to be. Because we can follow him faithfully. And that's what we're required to do. We're required to have faith in Jesus. And that will lead to a repentant lifestyle. You know, faith leads somewhere. And that's to faithfulness. Um, and ultimately, there's two possible conclusions in the human life. And the first is judgment for our sins, in which case we will be forever and eternally punished for what we have done. The second, though, is that we are redeemed through Jesus and we enter into glory. That the redemption which is begun today is found then, and then it goes on for an eternity. And we enter into the kingdom of God with love. And we enter in forever, where we will not see God as through a dark mirror, but in truth, completely. And I look forward to that day, because there's a lot going on in our world. <laughs> a lot of heartache, a lot of brokenness. There, no heartaches, no brokenness. Let's look forward to that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your teachings. We thank you for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ, that through the gospel, you redeem not certain things, not just one thing, but you redeem all of who we are. That you can even redeem institutions such as family. And Lord, as we continue to seek out your will and as we continue to understand what you would have us to be faithfully, we ask that you would continue to teach us what that means. And that we would take the scriptures that you have given us and seek to faithfully apply them to our lives. We thank you for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please rise.